You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Mike Ryan, who is a professor of integrative biology at the University of Texas in Austin, and also the author of this book right here, Taste for the Beautiful, The Evolution of Attraction, and is also the world's leading expert on Tungara frogs, I imagine. Today we're going to talk about frogs, of course, but we'll talk about other animals and we'll speculate about humans, which is my preferred animal. And so this book is about beauty, or it's, to be more specific, it's about sexual beauty in across the species. And it builds on this insight that Darwin made in his career. He said the peacock's tail made him nauseous after he wrote his first book, and this inspired him to develop a whole new theory, which paralleled natural selection, which was called sexual selection. And ever since, we've been puzzling over how important sexual selection is relative to natural selection, whether they're in alignment or in conflict. And you've introduced a really important twist, an entirely new theory, or at least an entirely new explanation for how sexual selection gets off and running. And so I'm really glad to have you here today, Mike, to talk about it. Welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. Maybe just to start off, I'm wondering if you could recap for us exactly how sexual selection differs from natural selection, if at all. Obviously, it makes sense that if you have characteristics which help you to be more successful in the reproduction game, this is something that you know you would want your offspring to have. And so presumably, you're going to try and choose a mate that gives those characteristics to your offspring. But why do we need an entirely separate theory of selection in order to explain the dynamics of this attraction? Well, and that's a good question. Some people consider sexual selection as a subset of natural selection, a type of natural selection. And Darwin clearly proposed it as a parallel theory. But if you consider it within the realm of sexual selection, that's fine too. The important thing is that we understand that selection is acting on different functions. So the emphasis in Darwin's first book on the origin of species was the evolution of adaptations for survivorship. And this is why he had this strong reaction to the peacock's tail. So after he publishes on the origin of species, he's then thinking about variation in animals throughout the animal kingdom. And there are lots and lots of traits that clearly don't foster survivorship, don't enhance survivorship. And the peacock's tail is emblematic of that. And that's a poster child for sexual selection. So then what Darm proposed is, it's very simple. It's that, well, natural selection favors traits for you to survive. But if you survive and you don't reproduce, then you're not passing your genes on to the next generation. And sexual selection, he suggested, promotes the ability of individuals to acquire mates. And this is what a lot of these elaborate traits, like the peacock's tail, would do. Females would find them sexually more attractive. So this is where the idea of sexual beauty comes. But then the controversy. So this idea of sexual selection wasn't readily accepted by Darwin's closest supporters, like Alfred Wallace, 
and Huxley did not support this idea of sexual selection, especially the mate choice component of it. And they asked, why should females prefer males that have characters that reduce their survivorship? And again, Darwin said, if the survivorship and the mating success balance out, then you should have selection for these attractive traits. But the peacock's tail, if it got too long, then it wouldn't evolve because the males would be very sexy to the females, but they would die before they had a chance to attract her. So I think that this conventional view within the sexual selection world is that these big tails and so forth, they're effectively costly signals. If you could somehow signal that you were somehow better than your peers at zero cost, that would be fantastic. But unfortunately, that's impossible because it has to be something which is costly. It has to cost more for the bad types than it does for the good types, right? So you need this sorting equilibrium to take place. And so is the costly signaling model really the only model out there that can make sense of what's going on? No, there's a couple of different ways to explain why these particular traits evolve, or specifically why females should prefer them. So the costly trait, it's also called the handicap principle. And the idea is that only males of high vigor, physical fitness, can afford to have these, again, think of the peacock, to have these long tails. And if there's a genetic basis for this physical vigor, then the female's offspring and the male's offspring would benefit by passing down these good genes for survivorship. So that's one way it could work. Another way it could work is a tricky idea, and it's called runaway sexual selection. So if you have genetic variation in a male trait and genetic variation in the female preference for that trait, you want to remember that the genes for the male trait and the female preference are carried Mm -hmm. by both males and females, is what we think usually, not all the time. But only males express the male traits and only females express the female preference. So you can have a situation where the alleles that favor the long tail, using the peacock example again, and the alleles that promote females to prefer the long tails, these two become statistically correlated. So then they evolve together. Selection, the males evolve the alleles for longer tails because they're preferred by females. There's no direct selection on the female preference. The term that was used to describe it once is these preference genes, there's genetic hitchhiking. They just go through generation after generation because they're statistically correlated. And then a third idea, and these aren't mutually exclusive, but the third idea, the one we've been working on the most and many others, is this idea of sensory drive or sensory exploitation. So sexual advertisement is a kind of communication. In any communication, the signals need to stand out against background noise. This is the basis for information theory when it was developed at Bell Labs quite a long time ago. So when the males display, they need to be loud and large and brightly colored and have overwhelming pheromones. And those need to evolve in the context of what the females can detect. So the females can see different colors, they can hear different sounds. And Darwin said, not in his sexual selection book, but in his next book on the emotion of emotions in men and animals. 
that the males are going to make those kinds of sounds that are already pleasing to the female. So these traits are going to be filtered by what the animal perceives, what it can perceive, and how it makes decisions. So the brain is, in that sense, a very important sex organ of the female, but the brain has other things on its mind. So fishes, for instance, will evolve photopigments in their eyes to let them best see the prey, given the light spectrum in the ocean. It appears males then next evolve colors that match this photopigment sensitivity in the females. And we find the same thing with the frogs and the frog calls that we study. The tuning of the inner ear is already in place. And then males then evolve calls that exploit, that match this uh, inner ear tuning. Now, that doesn't mean that there can't be good genes. That doesn't mean that there can't be runaway sexual selection. But people had always been looking at this from the point of view of the male's display. What's that telling the female about the male without realizing that we really need to look at these displays, not just through the eyes, but through the eyes and the nares and basically the brain of the female. So this is the theory of sensory exploitation that you introduced. And I find it fascinating. I interviewed Rob Dunn a while back and he asked the question, why does nobody think about deliciousness, right? Why do we pursue certain foods over others? And I think you're really asking the question of why is what we consider beautiful actually beautiful? And you say that sometimes it pre-exists the mating game. Because I think most people who have been thinking about this from an evolutionary perspective think that everything that we see as beautiful has its origins in the sexual brain, but you're saying that sometimes the brain is pre-wired for attraction or desire, and it's the sexual mating game that kind of hijacks that existing circuitry. Yeah, exactly. And a good human analogy is the way that our dopamine reward system, which is important in human attraction as well as animal attractions to sexual beauty, But in humans, that dopamine reward system is hijacked by cocaine, it's hijacked by overeating, and it's hijacked by pornography. So in some sense, the males are hijacking that female circuitry. But in another way, as you say, the females are really the biological puppeteers who are kind of getting the males to engage in this crazy dance. And so in in that sense, you're really digging into the brain as a sexual organ. And the thing about the sexual brain is that it is both the agent and the target in evolution, which makes it unique, right? Normally we think about, okay, we've got these environmental factors like temperature, which lead to some evolutionary target like fur, but you're arguing that the brain evolves both to signal and to detect the signal simultaneously. Yeah, exactly. So the females and the female brain, they're agents of selection because they generate selection on the males. They determine who gets to mate, who gets to pass on their genes. But they're also the target of selection because if those preferences backfire, so for instance, if they mate with the wrong species, then usually they're not going to have any offspring. So then there's going to be evolution of the female preference. So it becomes the target. And that is, that is very unusual, if not unique, that one aspect of a phenotype can both generate selection and be the target of selection. Could you tell us a bit about how did you come across this theory? You detail the work that you did with the frogs and the way in which they can hear the croaks of the male frogs. Could you 
maybe just talk about like, how did this aha moment happen to you? The frog's auditory system, it's a little different than ours. You know, we have one inner ear that perceives sound, one on either side of the head. And the frogs have two on each side of the head. One is most sensitive to lower frequencies. The other is most sensitive to higher frequencies. So there's about 7,000 species of frogs. Almost all of them make calls that indicate what species they are. And the frequencies in the call match these sweet spots in one of these two inner ear organs or both of them. So there had been a lot of studies of the neurobiology of frog hearing. And this was done in the context of species recognition. How is the brain wired to drive females to prefer males of their own species rather than other species? And I think you mentioned that's the first step, right? Before you start figuring out whether this is a good one or a bad one, you first have to figure out whether it's the right species. And I never thought of this as a major problem in my life, but apparently it's a big deal, right? When's the last time you heard of someone partnering up with a chimpanzee because they couldn't tell the difference? But it was a problem for humans because where do these Neanderthal genes that we all possess, where did they come from? Well, they came from humans and Neanderthals mating at some point in our history. But so anyway, that was these neurobiology studies in the context of species recognition were well known. And I started doing my thesis work just as this idea of sexual selection was being resuscitated. And the person, the faculty member, when I was a grad student, a faculty member down the hall was a giant in unraveling how the brain assigns value to sounds in the environment. And he worked on frogs. So then I decided to take that general philosophical approach and apply it to sexual selection. We can ask how the brain results in females preferring their own species. Can we ask how the brain is influencing females made choice within a species? And again, that was before people were thinking of made choice within a species very much. It wasn't until the late 70s that people started studying made choice and sexual selection. So these pre-existing brain wirings, one example that you use is coloration, right? And we all know that males tend to have elaborate coloration schemes, particularly reds and yellows and so forth. And you argue that the species that have this, right, they also are the species that need this color detection in order to forage, including humans. Yeah, including humans. And it's the same thing with auditory sensitivity as well. But it's not to say that selection for choosing appropriate mates is always subservient to these other functions, to these other domains. But we do need to remember that the brain has lots of things to do, lots of different tasks. And, you know, we don't have one module in our brain for listening to music and another module in our brain to talking to to offspring and another module in our brain talking to strangers. We have a language capacity and then we have to use that in many different domains of social function. 
So you talk about some examples of how in the lab or in the field, you can run these manipulations where you can alter the features of the males. And by altering the features of the males, you can not only uncover hidden preferences, but also identify that some of these preferences, they really know no bounds, right? So it's not like there's a certain optimal level of brightness, but if you are interested in brightness, then you're just going to chase after the maximum brightness. And the only reason why the species have not gone in that direction is because there's presumably some other trade-off that constrains their capacity to go into the extreme supernormal direction. Exactly. I mean, for example, in mate choice in moths, it's the opposite. The females are choosing males and they prefer males that can flap their wings faster. And the rate of wing flapping in the males is in the the low hertz or the teens. I forget exactly. Let's say it's 10 to 15 times per second. But this is a very old study. They made this flapper machine in Germany. And what they found is that the females would prefer these flapping rates going up to, I think, 100 cycles per second. Now, no male can flap that fast. And at the point that the preference for flapping rate starts, where it doesn't matter if you get much higher than, like, say, 100 hertz, it's because of the moth side, because that's where its flicker fusion rate is. So once you get above the flicker fusion rate of the moth, where everything now appears to be smooth, then the preference stops. So that's a useful example of how you have these constraints. And there's lots of studies with fishes that parallel our studies with frogs, where you can use models, either video playbacks or wooden models of fishes, and you can just add so many things to these models and the females still prefer them. And with the tungra frogs, they have an interesting mating call, I'll imitate it for you. The first part of it has a whine, and it sounds like this. And the whine is both necessary and sufficient to draw the attention of the female. She'll mate with the male producing only a whine. But then the males can add these chucks to the end of the whine. They can add up to seven of those. So we call it a complex call if it has a chuck. Females prefer complex calls to simple calls, and they prefer more chucks But the wine is the species recognition part of it. If you mess with the wine too much, because we can synthesize all these sounds, if you mess with the wine too much, then the females won't respond to it. The chucks, we found a couple of dozen sounds that we can use to replace the chuck, and the females still find these calls more attractive than only a wine. In fact, when we were doing this study, my late colleague said, It's almost like any bell or whistle at the end of the call makes this more attractive to females. So then we synthesize a whine followed by a bell and a whistle, and they preferred that to a whine by itself. So the chuck has this amazing sexual potency. It increases the male's attractiveness fivefold. Think in humans, what could we do to our appearance to make us five times more sexually attractive? And metabolically, it doesn't cost the frogs anything to burp burp at the end of their call. There's another cost, and that's this predation cost. There's these bats that home in on the calls, and they're attracted to wines, but also wines with chucks. But the point is, getting back to these hidden preferences, we can replace these sounds with a whole variety of sounds, and the females still prefer them. 
Now, with the wine, as I said, if you mess with the wine too much, the females won't prefer them. But what we can do is we can inject the females with dopamine that triggers this reward system. And now the female who's doped up in a sense, now she will respond to synthetic calls that normally she wouldn't respond to before. So we show that just like humans, that they're reward system can be hijacked by other kinds of sounds. And this probably fuels the evolution for these novel and bizarre additions that we can make to their calls. Yeah. Now, of course, we humans, we can use prosthetics and manipulate things without maybe some of the penalties that these animals would encounter. And as someone who's interested primarily in humans, these insights seem to help explain some of the things that we see around us in the way in which humans are manipulating themselves in order to appear more beautiful. And I wonder if we're all hopped up on dopamine all the time, right? Artificially, you know, whether that's changing our conceptions of beauty. We start to uh, brainwash children at least about what female beauty should be by giving them Barbie dolls, at least the older Barbie dolls. If you blow a Barbie doll up to human size, given how skinny her legs are and given the rest of her build, she would have to walk on all fours. And she only would have a small part of a kidney because her hips are so narrow. Would she even be able to keep her head off the ground? She wouldn't be able to keep her head up. And she wouldn't be able to reproduce because her birth canal would be too narrow for a a child to pass through. But we're telling young girls, you want to grow up to be beautiful? This is what beauty is. And also, too, when we look at male and female, men and women models, you know, they're not super normal stimuli in the sense that they actually do exist, but they're taken from really small tail of the curve of what humans look like. When Giselle Bunchen, Tom Brady's wife, when she was making lots and lots of money, I think she was maybe five foot 10, five foot 11, and weighed about 120 pounds. That's not from the middle of the distribution of what women look like. So we do get hijacked by these kind of supernormal stimuli, just like the animals. Well, and, and this relates, I think, to what uh, you described, the peak shift displacement, right? This shows up with distinguishing males and females, among other examples, right? Right. So with zebra finches, the males have these orange beaks and the females have a pale beak. So the offspring learn who's a male and who's a female by imprinting on the beak of their, the color of the beak of their mother and their father. So if you look at female mate choice later on, you would think they would prefer a beak color that's close to their father's. Well, the peak shift displacement, what they prefer is an orange beak that's very different from their mother. So it's even more orange than their father's. And it's just speculation, but in in humans, female attraction is often based on those traits of females that make them females. And with women preferring males, it's often on traits that are also sexually dimorphic. You know, the outline of the male's jaw is uh, is one example, besides other things like just a distribution of muscles, etc. And so you have, in some studies, women preferring men who look the most manly and 
men preferring female phenotypes that look the most feminine. And that usually means the least masculine. Well, when you talk about the different senses, I found a lot lot of interesting insights. You talk about vision, you talk about sounds, you talk about smells. In all three of these, there are these underlying neural mechanisms that are being exploited. So I was wondering if we could walk through all of these. In the world of vision in particular, right, there's a lot of talk about symmetry, like fluctuating asymmetry in the world of neuroaesthetics. And there's been all sorts of theories about why we might like symmetry. Also, I think you talk about how the things that look like faces, we humans have a propensity to look towards things that look like faces. You even mentioned that the alphabets of the world have certain consistent characteristics, which tap into our propensity to look at or at least differentiate certain types of shapes. Yes, we use our visual system to read alphabets, to read words, but our visual systems didn't evolve to be optimized for reading, of course. It evolved to extract useful information from the environment. So in this very clever study by this guy, Changizi and his colleagues, originally Caltech, now he's in industry, what they did is they surveyed natural scenes and they looked at simple repeating patterns in nature. And then they compared that to a very large number of alphabets. And what they found is the angles of the strokes and the number of the strokes used for letters really seem to match the most common small patterns that we see in nature. And now there's a more recent idea, which came out after this book that I wrote, called Perceptual Fluency. And this idea, which is a neuroaesthetic study, humans, that when we see patterns that we can perceive more simply, and by simply, what they mean is the amount of neural firing in the brain, that we actually derive hedonic pleasure from looking at these. So when artists do portraits of faces, the portraits of faces tend to be skewed a little bit, and they're skewed to the algorithms that we use to decipher visual scenes. So it seems that in humans, our evolutionary history of extracting information from nature is rewarded by this hedonic feeling when we perceive things quite easily. And now there's some data in fishes to show the pigment pattern of male fishes. These are called daughters. Those actually map well onto the habitat statistics of what the habitat is like whereas the female patterns do not do that. And in this species, it's the females that are choosing the males. So there's a lot of high-level cognitive biases and cognitive processes that people are just starting to look at now. And this field of neuroaesthetics is very popular right now. And people like myself working with animals, we're learning a lot by paying attention to neuroaesthetics. A number of years ago, we started paying attention to behavioral economics, and we started paying more attention to human psychophysics. And those three areas, neuroaesthetics, psychophysics, and behavioral economics, has really enriched how, at least for some of us, how we look at these, this taste for the beautiful that Darm suggested was so important in driving sexual selection. 
So now what is it about symmetry, our preference for symmetry? And I think it's a well-known regular phenomenon that people are more attracted to other people who are more symmetrical. And so the standard theory was that this meant that you had the ability to withstand stressors of various kinds during fetal development. Is this still the prevailing view or is there, could the preference for symmetry pre-exist this signal? It can certainly pre-exist this signal. I mean, do we prefer symmetric fruit? Is there anything better about symmetric fruit than asymmetric fruit uh, when we're, we're out foraging? We process it more easily. Cognitive neuroscientists have talked about the advantages of symmetry, that you have information on the left being duplicated by information on the right, and this therefore makes it easier to recognize, less likely to make mistakes. So it's more like the platonic ideal, right? So when we see something that looks more like the platonic ideal of what we're looking for, then it requires less mental effort. Less mental effort is a good thing. It makes us feel a little better and it conserves a little mental energy for other things. Is that the basic idea? Yeah, and it says metabolic energy. Neurons use a lot of our energy. Our brains use a huge amount of our daily energy allocation. But the idea that symmetry might also signal something about the animal's genome, its ability to buffer, as you said, environmental insults during development, that certainly seems to be true. And they started to recognize this when they were breeding fishes and fisheries. And of course, they're not worried about inbreeding because they're just going to let these fish go and people are going to catch them and eat them. So sometimes the inbreeding coefficient can get pretty high in these fisheries. And what they found is with more inbreeding, you get more fluctuating asymmetries. So that phenomenon is real. And there are instances where females' attraction to males can be influenced by the male symmetry. But there's also these cognitive mechanisms that are important. So these are not mutually exclusive explanations. There might be lots of signals in a human's or an animal's body about vigor, and some of them we're probably just blind to. We just don't see them. We don't smell them. We don't hear them. Well, speaking of sound, to me, this was the most interesting chapter because, and it probably reflects your interest in the frogs and their croaking, which, by the way, I frequently use frog mating in my class. And every now and then I'll get a student to croak for me, but it's never been as good, I have to say, as your croak. I think some of the things that I learned that I thought were fascinating were that the hormones of females are affected and manipulated by the sounds of the males. And this can get them more prepared or more ready for reproduction. And this is a direct manipulation. Another thing I learned had to do with short sounds versus long sounds. So, you know, I ride horses and you got giddy up and then you got whoa. And this is not a cultural construct, right? And this is something that you see across the animal kingdom. Right. In domesticated animals, so for instance, this is true in horses, and it's also the same in sled dogs. And the woman who did this study quite a while ago showed that with the sled dogs, you could raise them to recognize the go signal and they would stop. And then you could train them to go with the normal stop signal. So you could train them as puppies to do this, but then as adults, if you wanna flip them to what is the more typically used signals, stop and whoa, whoa, and go, 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 they flip very easily. But if you take adult sled dogs that learn the quote unquote correct association, they can't be flipped. So even though, so there's learning involved, there's training and training can reverse this. 
but there's also a very strong genetic disposition. Most of us in biology, we don't worry about nature versus nurture anymore. We don't think that's conflict because we think that everything has some kind of gene by environment interaction. So nothing is purely nurture and nothing is purely nature. But these genetic predispositions, even in animals that are learning, can be very important in having a genetic disposition to learn some things more easily than others. Well, songbirds seem to have culture, right? The songs of the birds are distinctly local, right? And they can be inherited from their parents, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're at Berkeley. The best example in North America of this song culture is out on Point Reyes. Over a walk of a couple of hundred meters, there's several populations of white-crowned sparrows that even if you don't have a trained ear, which I certainly don't for those birds, you can hear the differences. So songbirds learn their song. And we know that whenever you learn something, there's a possibility of making a mistake. And then these mistakes, which don't influence the animal's survivorship at all, these mistakes then just get propagated throughout the population. And then you get these different song cultures, very much like differences of accent. Mm -hmm differences in dialects in humans. This variety serves some kind of purpose too, right? So it helps you to distinguish in-group from out-group. I think among anthropologists, they've made this point that accent is a great way to identify a foreigner or identify somebody from a different tribe or a different group, right? Think of My Fair Lady and the assumptions about socioeconomic class being tied into dialects in the UK. And so you can also tell, right, whether someone's healthy, someone's beautiful, someone's young. Even humans can do this, right? Yeah. And there are certain aspects of just how we sound that say something about us. So for instance, men and women have different dominant frequencies. Men tend to have lower voices than women, with the exception of Elizabeth Holmes right? in this Theranos trial. That's obviously very effective. She's intentionally lowering her voice like any of us could. But then, of course, dialects, too, just give a whole lot of information. In my book, I give an example of a study done in Scotland where there played a phrase by someone from a higher and a lower socioeconomic class. They just hear the audio and the women are asked, which voices do they find more attractive? And it's the ones from the higher socioeconomic classes. Mm -hmm. And so you can also engage in some manipulation, right? Some of the greatest examples were that when you're projecting a sound, right, you can use the environment to make that sound deeper or make it louder or project it further. And so these animals are kind of like engineers, right? They build out environments to create echoes. And uh, I think the bowerbirds, they create these long paths so that when they're standing at the end of the path, it makes them look bigger, right? Yeah, there's animals are able to really take advantage of perceptual illusions to make themselves look bigger. With the bowerbirds, they arrange rocks, the size of the rocks, in a certain order. And this gives what's called forced perception. So like the Cinderella castle at Disneyland, the windows at the very top are smaller than the windows at the bottom. So we know that something that's farther away should appear smaller, but this hijacks that algorithm that we use. And we think that building is much larger, much taller than it really is. 
and the bowerbirds, it's the same thing. They f- have this forced perspe- perspective. So the females think the males are actually much larger than they are. And then the animals will dig burrows and they'll not only call from the burrow, but they'll call from the burrow so that their call is one wavelength away from the entrance to the burrow, which really maximizes the resonant properties, the echoes that you get out of those burrows. And the Mayans, and I think the Aztecs as well, they would have areas where they would have meetings and the speaker could stand in a certain spot and then his voice would be amplified to the crowd. So yeah, these tricks have been used for a while in both vision and sound. You talked about one species of bird that migrates across the hemispheres and they change their song because the environment is different, right? They go from one type of forest to another. And to get optimal projection, they need to change the way they sing. And I think you mentioned also that if you put frogs in a little cavity and then you adjust the level of the water, they'll adjust the level of their song kind of automatically to calibrate to the volume of the cubbyhole that they're in. Yeah, so they call in tree holes and the frequency of their calls that are going to resonate the best depend on the space in the tree hole. And these tree holes can fill with water. So the researchers showed in real time, as you pump water into the bottom of this and the water goes up and the space decreases, then the birds change their frequency to match the resonance. And there's a really wonderful COVID example. The amount of traffic over the Golden Gate Bridge has changed drastically. First of all, over the years, and then then with the pandemic, it's dropped to about 1970 values, measures of traffic. And white-crowned sparrows, again, the white-crowned sparrows in that area of San Francisco and also on the other side, Marin, they've now changed the pitch, the frequency of their call. And they've dropped it because now there's not as much noise for them to worry about. So now their songs sound like white-crowned sparrows that live in rural areas where you don't have all this traffic noise. And if we ever get out of this pandemic, I'm sure the person who did this study, Elizabeth Derryberry, is going to keep measuring the traffic noise and keep measuring the bird song and see how well the bird songs are tracking these holes in this anthropogenic noise so they can maximize their contrast, their acoustic contrast to the background. Well, I think my favorite, you know, the strangest study that you reference having to do with sound had to do with, I think they played various types of classical music and had people watch pornography. And apparently you could elicit a different response with major versus minor sounds. Okay. Now, most people would think that the association between, say, major and minor with different kind of affects is a cultural construction. It, do we have any reason to think it's something other than a cultural artifact? Not at the level of the brain that I know of. We know that there's really interesting aspects, musical scales, for instance, that match on to the important frequency peaks in our voice. So it seems that musical notes are chosen to match aspects of human speech. But, and we do know for sure that different kinds of music elicit different kinds of emotion. I mean, the blues key is called the blues because it makes you feel bluesy. But whether that's cultural or not, it is really hard to tell. You do get the feeling that martial music, you know, that they use to motivate people 
in the armed forces to march and to fight. You do get a feeling that when you hear that, it does really make you want to get up and move and not dance move, but march move. But that also could be cultural. But these effects that I talked about in the book, when people first they hear this classical music and different people hear different men, it's a study of men, hear different types of music, and then they view pornography and their response to the pornography is very different. So if they're hearing romantic music, they have one response. If they're hearing martial music, then another response or something in a major key versus a minor key. Now, I want to talk about aromas and smells. I've talked to a bunch of people on this podcast about smell, the probably least appreciated sense of all among us humans, but certainly not underappreciated among the rest of the animal kingdom. And I think that what some people are probably wondering first and foremost is, are pheromones something that humans also have to deal with? Or are pheromones something that humans have left behind? I know you're not an expert on humans, but that's always the thing that most people want to know about. Because pheromones seem to be these incredibly powerful things that can go across many, many miles and that animals can detect them in very small quantities. And also the perfume industry is a billion-dollar industry, right? So that's certainly tapping into the potency of odors influencing our behavior. And one of the most interesting aspects of human pheromones has to do with this complex of genes that we have, major histocompatibility genes. These are the genes that run the immune system. Every animal has them, right? Every animal, certainly every vertebrate, and I think some invertebrates have them. And these are associated with odors. So there's this famous study called the Stinky T-Shirt Study. These were done with college students, like a lot of these studies. They would have guys wear these T-shirts for a few days and not bathe and not use any cologne. Then the T-shirts were put in plastic bags. And then women would smell these plastic bags and rate the sexual attractiveness of the different odors, the different shirts. Now, what they also did is they analyzed their MHC genes. So they knew the MHC genes of the women and the MHC genes of the men. And the women preferred the odors of men whose MHC genes were the most different from theirs. Now, one of the key aspects of MHC is that it's the most variable gene in the vertebrate kingdom. And this genetic variation is very important, helping it to recognize pathogens when they enter the body. So from a genetic engineering point of view, if you wanted to maximize MHC variation in your offspring, which should promote your offspring's health, then you would want to partner with someone whose MHC genes are different than yours. And it appears that they're hooked up to odors. And then in follow-up studies, they've shown that people with similar MHC genes tend to prefer similar types of perfumes. So the perfumes do seem to be plugging into something that we have there that's related to sexual behavior. I think when women are on birth control, this mechanism flips, right? So the attraction to different MHC genes goes away and is replaced with a kind of homophily, right? And as you point out, this could lead to some maybe disappointing marriages if the 
screening process doesn't take place, right? And the idea is, I just explained why if you're interested in maximizing the health of your children, then you know, you prefer a partner with different MHC. But the idea is then once you have children, you want to be attracted to people with similar MHC genes. It's kind of, you know, it takes a village to raise a child and that village is usually close relatives. And so, yeah, that's the speculation that if people fall in love while the woman is on birth control and then the woman stops using birth control, now her MHC bouquet is going to change And is there any evidence for higher divorce Mm. rates there? There was some suggestion that in Scandinavia that maybe so, but maybe not. So it's an interesting prediction. It's not a well-borne out prediction yet. And I think my favorite example in this part of the book was how these bees, they bathe in the scent of orchids in order to make themselves more attractive. And the ironic thing is that the orchids were trying to make themselves more attractive by smelling more like bees. Yeah, so these orchids, these particular kinds of orchids, are called deceptive orchids for a good reason. They don't produce nectar. That's usually the payoff to an animal. The animal visits the flower, the pollinator visits the flower to get nectar. And when it's getting nectar, then the pollen gets on the pollinator and then it brings that to the next flower unintentionally. What these deceptive orchids do is they produce chemicals that mimic the smell of bees. And in fact, these chemicals in some cases smell more like bees than bees do, smell more like bees than virgin bees do. And then, you know, the next logical step is that being anthropomorphic, some of the bees figure this out. So when they go to the orchid, they actually take the odors from the orchid and then they rub it on their bodies, which then makes them more attractive to conspecifics, to members of the opposite sex. It's a crazy system. For the orchids, it still works out fine. The male's still getting pollen and moving it from orchid to orchid, but the orchids have become so good at smelling like a bee that they smell more like the bees than the bees do, and the bees then take advantage of it. So they become this pharmacopoeia of beef pheromones. They, they open up like a perfume shop, basically. Exactly, exactly. And I think you mentioned this one example of, of a bee that found itself stranded in an area where there were none of these orchids and so managed to kind of cook up a replica perfume sourced from a whole bunch of other orchids. Yeah, yeah. This was a bee species that's a native to Costa Rica and it got transported probably with plants or produce to Florida. And yeah, and this there were no orchids, that species of orchid. So then they just put together a whole bunch of ingredients from all of these different plants to compensate and mimic these pheromones fairly well. So yeah, you know, this example of MHC, this is where you don't have simple assortative attraction, right? So it seems like in all of the other examples, when you're talking about beauty, visual beauty, auditory beauty, and so forth, there seems to be some consensus around what is more and what is less beautiful. And so you could potentially even rank order all of the males and most of the females would subscribe to that rank ordering. But with respect to MHC, there's this heterogeneity in preferences. Is there evidence of heterogeneity in preference in the other domains? Or why don't we see all the females simply converge on a single male? Is it Because it doesn't seem like it would be a capacity constraint. There are other examples. So 
When we're talking about good genes before genes for bigger, well, that's the example that you point out. There's good genes and not so good genes and bad genes, regardless of who the female is. But then there's also complementary genes like MHC. So when there's complementary genes, then you get this kind of assortative mating. One kind of assortative mating that we talked about earlier on is mating with your own species rather than another species. But there's other kinds. In humans, there's strong assortative mating by height. In some animals, like frogs, there can be assortative mating by body size. And the reason being that in frogs, the male gets on top of the female and clasps her. She releases her eggs into the water. The male releases his sperm. And if there's a mismatch in size, either the male's way big or the male's way small, then the sperm's not going to contact as many of the eggs. So there's a sort of mating there. And there's an example with birds where the females use both a visual cue and an auditory cue when they assess males. So the male's plumage and display and the male's song. And the females vary in how good their hearing is and females vary in how good their eyesight is. And this leads the females to have different preferences. So the females with better hearing weight the song more than the plumage and females with better eyesight weight the plumage more than the song. So again, that is a type of assortative mating and it's also going to maintain variation among the males. There's not going to be one super attractive male because females prefer different combinations of these traits. Towards the end of the book, you talk about how preferences can be variable or fickle, and this is usually a function of constraints, right? So as creatures get older, they change their preferences. As their mating season draws to a close, they change their preferences. And also they start to, they learn from others. So they'll look around and see what others are looking at and copy, right? So there's make choice copying. And I think that the other thing that I found really interesting was the phantom decoy effect, which we see as an irrationality, and it's been studied fairly well in humans. Animals seem to fall prey to the same thing. And I guess the only possible explanation for that is what cognitive ease of computation? Yeah, for this cognitive decoy idea, the assumption is that if you have two individuals or in economics, two products to choose from, the relative preference of A over B should not be influenced whether there's a third alternative. And then what we find is if there is a third alternative, then that can actually flip the preferences. So just a simple example, if you offer somebody a trip to Paris and a trip to Rome, a free trip and free breakfast for your whole vacation there, some people might have a hard time deciding. But if you add a third alternative and that alternative is a free trip to Rome, but no free breakfast. Now that makes the trip to Rome with the free breakfast seem more attractive than the trip to Paris with the free breakfast. It's crazy. And animals do this. We've shown this with the frogs that we work with. We give them two calls. We just call them A and B, and the females don't show a strong preference. And then we add another call to the mix, C, which we know ahead of time is an unattractive call. And then it causes the females to switch their preference to now show a strong preference for B, even if they actually had a preference for A. And it's probably, we don't understand exactly what they're doing, but it might be how their 
measuring a particular part of a sound or a visual display and using this third option as a baseline metric, but it is common. Now, the mate choice the mate choice copying is really interesting. There's two possibilities with mate choice copying. One is it's an adaptation to get better mates, to choose better mates. And people have made the argument, well, when you're copying others, because now you have more information around who is a good mate. So you integrate that information and you show mate choice copying. So they did a study in humans recently. It's not in my book. It came out afterwards. And they have people rate the attractiveness of a face. They have men do this and women do this. And this is done in real time. You have a group of people all doing this on their separate computer. And then they get feedback. What was the average, what was the average rating of a face? And now do you want to change your rating? And people do. And they change it by a certain percentage. I forget exactly what the percentage is, you know, in one direction. Then they repeat the same study with the same people and they show them hands. How do you rate the attractiveness of the hands? And then they get feedback and then they can change their ratings. And it's almost exactly the same amount that they change their rating. So then they do it with paintings. Same phenomenon. People rate the paintings. When they get feedback, they do change it and they also change it by the same amount. So it seems that mate choice copying could possibly be just one example of social facilitation, which we know is a common phenomenon in humans. And we know it's a common phenomenon in animals with feeding, for instance. Mm -hmm. Mate choice copying is widespread, but we don't quite know yet if it's an adaptation or if it's just an incidental consequence on how we integrate all kinds of social information when we make decisions, meaning it might not be special to make choice. I talk about this in my behavioral finance class where we talk about you have a private signal and then others have private signals and you have to weigh your private signal against the signal of others. But of course there, those experiments are done in the absence of a resale market. And when you add in the resale market, which is like a proxy for sexual reproduction, then the the effect becomes that much stronger. Neat. So the final example used in the book has to do with, again, getting back to these manipulations. And sometimes there are inadvertent manipulations, right? So you talk about how there were these experimenters that had different colored bands that they put on the different birds. And then this led to differences in preferences, right? That revealed differences in preferences that were hidden. And I thought the most interesting insight there is that maybe we have to go back and revisit all of our experiments because maybe this is something that we haven't been tracking. I read recently someone said that we probably need to go back and look at the gender of the experimenters because the hormones, when a male experimenter walks into the room of rats, they're pushing off this gigantic flume of testosterone and they might get differential effects. So if you have a male experimenter with the treatment group and a female experimenter with the control group, then you know, the differences that you get might be due simply to the gender of the experimenter. And I guess here, if you have any kind of difference in band color that was done without it purely innocently, it might actually screw up the results of your test. Yeah. And with that initial bird band color study, these are with zebra finches, again, that have the orange beaks. And when they put a red or an orange band on a male, it makes them more attractive to the females whereas a green band would make him less attractive. So the idea is that, sure, females prefer males with orange beaks, but females just have this hidden preference for orange, period. So if you adorn these males 
with orange all over their body, you're just going to make them more and more attractive. This idea of experimenters throwing off human pheromones, which you wouldn't have to worry about that with many animals, but you certainly would have to worry about that with studies of mammals. I actually hadn't thought of that. That's a really good point. Presumably when you're down in Panama studying your frogs, I think you mentioned in the book that you went out and you had to mark them all so that you could keep track. Did it occur that maybe those markings were influencing things? How did you, first of all, I want to know, how the heck do you go out and mark all these frogs? I mean, that just sounds like a pretty crazy endeavor. Well, what we do, this will sound a little barbaric, but frogs aren't people. What we do is we make toe clips. So you just clip off a little part of a toe. And they don't show any reaction to it. We can't assume that they're not feeling pain, but they don't show any reaction to it. And we do those toe clips after we do the experiments with the frogs. So we collect the frogs in the field. We bring them into our lab in Panama, play the mating calls, do our experiments. Then we put them back that same night where we found them. And the reason that we do these toe clips is so we don't test them again. So yeah, toe clipped animals never do get tested again. And then work that we do with bats because they're bigger. And then we can put in little transponder tags. So then when we catch the bat, you just have to swipe them with a detector to see if they have one of these transponders. Lots of interesting insights about beauty. I think all of us are interested in beauty, right? All of us are seeking out beauty. I think you talk about how our dopamine center creates reward whenever we're surrounded by any type of beauty. And I think that the non-biological sciences can certainly learn a lot from biology. You've learned a lot from social science, and you've learned a lot from the study of how humans interact with the world. Do you see a corresponding flow of insight going in the other direction? Have you spoken a lot to people in the social sciences? Yeah, well, I do. We have one of the founders of the field of evolutionary psychology right here, David Buss. And I'm writing a chapter for a book that David Buss is putting out. And that's specifically the framework of the chapter is that most of evolutionary psychology is drawing from evolutionary theory based on animals and asking to what degree does this apply to humans. So that's really the stronger flow of information from animal studies to human, whereas what I was emphasizing and what we've been doing a lot of is in the opposite direction. There's about four or five or six different studies that we've done that have been motivated totally by studies on humans and usually more mechanistic studies of humans, like seeing voices and hearing lips. We've been very interested in how information from visual stream and acoustic stream can get mixed up and give wrong information. So there's fewer people going in that direction from what we know about humans and applying it to us, to the animals. And the studies of humans that we're interested in are not studies of the adaptive significance of human behavior as opposed to what have people in cognitive neuroscience and behavioral economics and psychophysics, what phenomena do they uncover in humans? And can we find these phenomena in animals? Thanks so much for joining me. I think there's a budding self-help book in here. There's a budding bestseller about lessons around beauty that we can take from frogs and birds. Yeah, this is really fun. And it's very rewarding to talk to someone who actually read the book. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was unputdownable. I was taking all sorts of notes. I wish I'd had these tips when I was younger. I think I could have profited from them. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah, me too. All right. Thanks so much. Hope to see you again soon. 
Okay, you're quite welcome. Thank you kindly. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.